0: up on the screen behind me are some quotations and they all have something in common and I wonder if anyone can tell me what these quotations have in common. First one is take away those pillows I shall need them no more. The second one is Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. The third one is, no, you certainly can't. And the fourth one is, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Can anyone tell me what those four quotations have in common? Exactly. Priscilla, you, you're, you're really smart. You, it's always you who gets the right answer straight away. Oh, it's great. It's, it's lovely having you around. They are all reported to be the last words of famous people. Does anyone know who said, take away those pillows, I shall need them no more? No, it was Lewis Carroll. What about, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow? It was Steve Jobs, the uh, founder of Apple. And I know you certainly can't. And I do wonder what they couldn't do, but it was JFK. And either this wall, or even that wallpaper goes or I do, slightly more famous one was Oscar Wilde. Yeah, so, of course, whether or not those were the actual last words of these people uh, is always going to be open a bit. But I find it quite interesting when I read some of these lists of people's last words. Like the last words of 70s soul singer Barry White were, Leave me alone, I'm fine. A couple were quite beautiful. Mother Teresa's, reportedly, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you. And Michael Faraday's, apparently his last words were, I shall be with Christ, and that is enough. Karl Marx, on the other hand, didn't share my fascination. His last words were spoken to a housekeeper who asked him if he had any last words, and he said, go on, get out, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Well, today, we begin a series on the last words of Jesus. And the Gospels report seven such sayings that Jesus made from the cross. And in some churches, they would have a big service on Good Friday where they would look at each of these in turn. I'm actually going to let them take us through Lent. And if it all goes according to plan, I should finish on Good Friday. But... As we begin, just, I want to start with another quiz. Okay? So, this time it's a mental arithmetic exam. So no pens, pencil, paper, a calculator allowed. I want you to add the following numbers as quickly as you can. So we're starting with a thousand. Then add forty. Add another thousand. Add thirty. Add another thousand. Add twenty. Add another thousand, and add ten. How many people? First of all, how many of you did it at all? How many people did that and got the answer five thousand? Apparently, ninety percent, ninety-six percent of people will give the answer five thousand when they're asked that question. The actual answer is 4,100. When we assume we know how to do something, we often just do it without thinking too much about it, but it can lead to us making mistakes. Or on a slightly different tack, I came across a story this week about a management consultant who was hired to review the reporting process of a small British company. And he came across a particular report which included an unmarked box. And he noticed that on every day for a year, the number zero had been inserted in that box. And he asked the person who filled in the report why that figure was always zero. And he was told because that was what his supervisor told him to put in that box. And he asked a supervisor, who said, well, I assume it's got something to do with accidents. But my supervisor way back when told me to put naught in that box. And it's been naught for 25 years. And he went round the company and nobody knew what this zero meant. And that got him really fascinated, and he was determined to find out. And he went, tr- he tracked down the company's archives all the way back to when the company was founded in 1937. And however far he went back, it seemed there was still this unbroken ze- run of zeros. And eventually he reached the original reports. And it dated from 1941, and he discovered that this box had a heading. Number of air raids today. Over time, the heading had disappeared, but the box remained. Just People just weren't thinking about it. They didn't know what they were doing. And we like to think of ourselves as intelligent, prudent, rational thinking beings. We go, ah, babies, they act on instinct. Children might not really understand what they're doing. But part of growing up is supposed to be being self-aware. We know what we're doing. But whether we realise it or not, we so often act without challenging assumptions Without thinking, we don't really know what we're doing. And we all do this sometimes. Is there anyone in this room who has not gone into another room and then thought, what am I here for? In the case of the company with all the zeros in the boxes in the grand scheme of things it didn't really matter. There probably were no air raids between 1945 and 19 whatever it was. But in the maths example 96% of people thought they knew what they were doing and they were coming to the wrong answer. And, And sometimes acting without thinking can have a dreadful impact. When UNIVAC the company who invented the first computer entered into business into talks with the business community. They decided that there was absolutely no point in, in developing an, an interest with the business community because the computer was a scientific machine. It didn't have business applications. And as a result, they lost out to IBM. And you'd think IBM would have learned... But they assumed that the, uh, that the computer was a business machine and assumed it would have no personal applications until Apple came on the scene. As Paul says in the Corinthians poem about love, we know in part, we see in part, but a little knowledge or partial knowledge can be a dangerous thing because we so often don't know what we're doing. In preparing this series, I've spent quite a bit of time in the various gospel accounts on the crucifixion of Jesus. And what's odd about them is the first Christians were not actually really that interested in the details of crucifixion. That's quite a modern thing. That we look at all that what what actually happened to Jesus and how he suffered for us. So what we do know about crucifixion tends to come from classical Roman sources rather than the Bible. On the whole, the gospels merely have one line that says something like, and then they crucified him. And that was enough. They knew what that meant. It made them shudder. And they did pay attention to some events around the cross. The mocking, the division of Jesus' clothes, the darkness and so on. Largely because with the benefit of hindsight they saw echoes or prophecies of the moment of his death scattered throughout the Old Testament. And reliable people who pay more attention to this kind of stuff than me say Jesus fulfilled more prophecies in the hours leading up to his death than he did in the 33 years previously. And this kind of helped the first Christians become convinced that the crucifixion of Jesus was not just some horrible accident, that God had been at work in it all along. But they were interested in what Jesus said from the cross. All four Gospels have something of what Jesus said as he was dying. And this morning we turn to the first. But Jesus' first words weren't spoken to us, but to God. He doesn't look for support, he doesn't take a moment to explain to his beleaguered followers that this is all part of the plan anyway, don't worry. His words are, Father forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Father forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is a word which is bandied around quite a bit today. News items in which victims are of some horrendous crimes will say that they forgive the perpetu- perpetrators and it's a regular subject of debate. And in many churches around the world, people will pray today, forgive us our sins or our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us and yet as often as the word is used I'm not actually that sure we always really understand it and there are a couple of problems with the word because we can call on people to forgive too easily that it's something you must do and that's fair enough but true forgiveness cannot be forced and when we don't recognise how hard it can be to forgive, we are we can minimise the damage caused and the hurt felt. And that's not to say it's good and important. It's just forgiveness is not easy. But often we encounter a different problem. Because talking about forgiveness implies... We need to be forgiven. And that offends our sense of who we are. Forgiveness? Me? But I'm a decent person. I've never done anyone any harm. Why would I need forgiven? And in his first words from the cross, Jesus challenges all our preconceptions about ourselves and forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know What they're doing. What do you mean, Jesus? These guys knew exactly what they were doing. The soldiers nailing Jesus to the cross, they did this every day. They knew exactly how to do it. They were skilled at it. And even as they executed Jesus, they were doing another couple with him. Crucifixion was as every bit an efficient way of killing somebody as it was brutal. They knew what they were doing. And for up to two to three years a lot of Jesus' opponents had been trying to find a way to get rid of him and his subversive teaching. And finally they had their chance and they seized it. Surely, surely Jesus, they know what they're doing. And yet, As each party plays their various parts in putting Jesus to death, none of them really has a clue what is going on here. And you can see that ignorance played out in the scene at the cross. A big thing throughout Luke's gospel is that Jesus is the saviour of the world. That Jesus is dying to save us. And yet as he hangs there, he's mocked by the soldiers, by the priest even, by one of the criminals hanging there with him. And they all say roughly the same thing. Save yourself. Save yourself. And the point Luke's making is that if he does that, he can't save the rest of us. Speaking from the cross, we can kind of see, maybe more clearly, just how wrong they called it. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. What's this got to do with us? Well, in my experience of life, the number of people who actually set out to do something evil is exceptionally small. That's not to say that people do not do really bad or evil things. But we humans are very good at finding a justification for why we do what we do. And often the most evil things start out with good intentions. And that's what's true at the cross. The people who who sentenced Jesus to death were standing up for law and order. The people who put Jesus to death thought they were protecting good biblical values. The people who put Jesus to death were just obeying orders. The people who put Jesus to death were all acting on the best legal advice available to them. And if they had truly known that this was what they were doing, that this would be the ultimate rejection of the God for whom they had hoped for and waited for for thousands of years, would they have done it? It's not impossible, but it's much less likely. But they don't know what they're doing. And yet right then, as the Son of God is being put to death, he prays for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And we know this well on a grand scale. Barely a day, will go past where you will not hear the words climate change or climate emergency or about the damage that we have done to the planet. Do you know what? There was never a day when somebody woke up one day and thought, do you know what I think would be a really good idea? That we screw up the planet we're living on. It was just unintended consequences It was mostly in the name of progress, but cumulative actions and cumulative choices have led us to where we were. We didn't know what we were doing. Or on Fair Trade Fortnight, when we're reminded of how we can make good choices which can benefit the lives of others, the reason we have Fair trade Fortnight is because there are so many systems set in place which benefit one group of people, normally us, and impoverish others and harm their way of life for our benefit. And we don't realise it. We're just going to Sainsbury's and Tesco's and Aldi. And then Panorama does that programme highlighting how that £5 pound t-shirt that you've got was made in a sweatshop somewhere. And we're horrified. How could this happen, we ask? It's Because all too often, we didn't know what we were doing. And there are a couple of reasons why I think we find it so hard to think of needing forgiveness. One of them is The churches have to an extent minimised what Jesus came to deal with. Most Western churches are shaped by tradition which focus very much on the individual and my personal morality. We can think of me and my sin and we can tick off little lists of things that we're supposed to do and we're not supposed to do and we can measure ourselves against that and we can see am I a good person. And of itself not necessarily or entirely bad. But sin is so much bigger an issue. It's become so entangled and ingrained in the very fabric of our world that we don't even realise it's there. And that leads me into the second problem. Because sin is so immersed in every structure of human networking and relationships that so often we do not recognise or see the consequences of our actions. Our vision is so partial, we truly do not know what we're doing. And we don't mean any harm. And this knowledge of knowing and not knowing what we do crops up in one of the last stories Jesus ever told. Jesus told a story about a judgment and there was sheep on one side and goats on another side and he, and Jesus said you yeah, i was hungry and you fed me i was thirsty and you gave me to drink i was naked and you clothed me i was in prison and you came to visit me and they both respond in exactly the same way they say hold on a second jesus When did we see you hungry and feed you, or naked and clothe you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we not do it? Some made the right decisions, some made the wrong decisions. But they had something in common. They didn't know what they were doing. Or not completely. A few years ago, the comedian Dave Gorman wrote a book called America Unchained. And he tried to get from one side of America to the other without using any sort of chain hotel or a multinational company. And part of his problem, he found, was it wasn't always obvious. What seemed to be that lovely little family-run independent company was in fact controlled by one of the big companies he was trying to avoid. He was trying to live in a certain way, but it wasn't easy because he didn't always know what he was doing. Or a few years ago, about seven years ago maybe, I went vegetarian for Lent. That was a big thing for me. I like my mate. But you know what? Being veget going vegetarian was harder than I thought. Not because you know, I like meat, no, although that was part of it. but yeah, you know, I could avoid meat. That was straightforward. You know Somebody says, "Do you want a bacon sandwich?" No, thank you. Not hard. It's just that there were so many things that I liked that had meat products and I didn't know them. Not being able to eat wine gums was harder than not being able to eat steak. And the writer Chris Wright makes the same point about sin. It's become, he says, it can be, we can become so ensnared in evil without even realising it, that however ethical our consumption pattern, the food that we eat, the clothes that we're wearing, they can all be stained with cruelty, injustice, oppression, and we don't even know it. And it's not that we mean it, we certainly never wish to cause anyone any harm, If we really knew, we may not make those choices again. But it remains the result of our choices. We just don't know what we're doing. And Wright concludes, It's practically impossible to get through life without some complicity in evil or benefit from some evil that someone else has done. We can't live as a little island, however much we try. Our lives are touching people all the time, for good or for ill. And we might not directly cause others pain, but our actions can affect them. Because quite simply, we don't know what we're doing. which might cause us to throw our hands up in despair. Andrew, what chance have I got? Just send me home depressed, why don't you? But before we get bogged down by that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And those words challenge so much of what I have been told about forgiveness. I grew up in a much more violent culture than perhaps many people in mainland Britain grew up in. And there was a lot of animosity between sides. And one of the things I used to hear a lot was, you can't forgive someone unless they repent. Let the offender ask for forgiveness, let them say they're sorry, really sorry, and then we'll forgive. And I think that was, you know, mixing up two words, forgiveness and reconciliation. Because reconciliation involves two people. Forgiveness actually really only involves one. Because what we're saying is, so long as they know what they've done. And as long as they admit it was wrong, then forgiveness is possible. But that's not what Jesus says from the cross. It's at the point where we don't know what we're doing, that we find Jesus fully aware that we don't know that, praying, Father, forgive them. I meet people fairly frequently who are eaten up by stuff that was done to them a long, long time ago. They carry this stuff around and they're never letting it go. I actually, hands up, I notice it in myself sometimes. The trouble is, much as me we might wish them to, the person who did those things isn't lying awake at night thinking, when did I why did I do that to so and so? They're getting on with life. They're not fretting over the errors of their ways. They're quite blissfully unaware of the consequences of their actions a lot of the time. They might not even actually realize that they hurt us. But we can carry that around and we know no healing until the point where we are prepared to forgive. And if we wait for them to repent and say sorry, we may wait forever and we'll never be free. And I'm not saying it's not costly, because that's exactly what it is. Forgiveness actually involves accepting that the consequences of another's actions are going to fall on you. You're not going to pass it on, you are going to let it fall on you. That is quite literally what the word means and that is what it cost God to forgive us and that's what we get from Jesus on the cross there can be no change no new relationship between us and God without forgiveness but if Jesus waits for the moment when we become fully aware of what we've done until we are fully aware of the consequences of all our choices God will be waiting till the end of eternity Our relationship with God is not based on knowing what we've done or of us being fully aware of who we are or of being knowing our motives completely. Yes, as we draw closer to God, we will become more aware of the sin in our lives which needs to be confessed. But those words of Jesus from the cross remind us you are forgiven even before you know you need it. We do not confess to receive forgiveness. We already have it. And that's what this table is all about. That whoever we are Whatever we've done, we have been forgiven. Not because of what we've done. Not because we've made amends. Not even because we confessed and repented. We are forgiven. We're forgiven not just the stuff which we knew was wrong and needs forgiveness. But all that stuff we did unintentionally. All those times when we thought we were doing the right thing and it turned out to be a very wrong thing. All those times that we're still not aware of the damage we caused. All those times when we might never be fully aware of the consequences of our choices. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. And we're invited to come to share with Jesus. And remember that even when we were estranged from God, even when we didn't realise we were estranged from God, Jesus' body was broken. And his blood shed that we might be reconciled to God. And all he's asking is that we reach out and take it. Because that's the risk of the, or the danger of forgiveness. You can offer it, but if forgiveness is refused, you can't force another To be reconciled to you. Not even God can do that. It has to be taken. But Jesus still extends the welcome. To come. To eat. To drink. To be welcomed in love and forgiveness. To be reconciled to the God who gave himself for us. And it's possible, because even before we knew what we were doing, forgiveness had been made available. Jesus is not asking you to confess and repent to receive forgiveness. He invites us to confess and repent in the knowledge that you are forgiven. That the barrier to a relationship is not on his side, because he's already broken that down. He's forgiven us even before we knew what we'd done. And if we reach out to him, we'll find him running along the road. Coming to welcome us home. Grace and peace to you. Amen.